I found this right down there. This is confetti from Easter. This room gets cleaned every week and confetti is just materializing still from our celebration on Easter Sunday. Isn't that cool? Um, I found a pile of this on my desk because someone who came in uh, who remain, remain nameless, Kathy Gauker, and uh, was doing communion, she found some and put it on my desk for me as a gift, which I appreciated very much. I just, that was such a good time. If you guys missed Easter Sunday, put that on, circle that on your calendar for next year. It's gonna be a good time. Uh, we're continuing in this series, The Good News of the Kingdom of God. And I'm just gonna go straight into it because there's a lot to try to cover today. Um, this is gonna be a PG-13 message. So I don't see anybody under that age. We're good, we're safe, we're covered. Um, but parents, if, you're, if your kids or if your grandkids are, are, are in you know, middle school, high school, this is, this is an important subject and you, you need to uh, be having these conversations with them and, uh, and from a Jesus-centered perspective. So we're gonna talk about the good news about sexuality today. Our, our series has been revolving around this um, understanding that God wants to bring his kingdom to earth. There's two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of earth that we live in where everything is uh, physical, temporary. You can see, taste, and touch. And then there's the kingdom of heaven where everything is spiritual and eternal and invisible. And Jesus's prayer, his model prayer says, would you pray? I want you to pray that the kingdom of God would come to earth. And the way that God brings his kingdom to earth is through his church. And so the way that we, as part of God's people, bring the kingdom of God to earth is that we live with the kingdom of God as our primary perspective, our primary way of viewing the world around us, that we see everything through the lens of the kingdom of God, everything, including food. We talked about food last week and how we, we need to see food through the lens of the kingdom of God. And so this subject is important for us to talk about. We need to see sex and sexuality through the lens of the kingdom of God and what God um, has for us. So I'm just gonna cut right to the chase and tell you the good news about sexuality is that it is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's not something that human beings made up when God wasn't looking. You know, it, it, it is a gift directly from him. And um, whenever God gives a gift to humans, wants something for their good, the enemy immediately responds by trying to twist that thing and make it bad. So God gives it as a good gift. The enemy, Satan, wants to twist it and turn it into something bad. And so what, the way the church has responded to this over the years has just been really interesting. If you follow church history and the way we've talked about sex and sexuality, in fact, a lot of churches don't talk about it at all, which is sort of a problem. I love this line from Howard Hendricks that we, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. Like, we need to talk about this, but churches historically haven't done a great job talking about it. This subject is present in every other part of our culture, from the golf course to TikTok to the school bus, but not in the church. The, the churches I grew up in anyway, the churches I grew up in, the only thing they had to say about sex was don't. That was it, just don't, you know? And so I, I didn't learn a whole lot from my church about how to see this from a godly perspective. But some of you grew up in churches that actually did talk about it, but maybe talked about it in ways that were unhealthy, that ways that created shame or gave power to one gender over another. We can do better. We have to do better. But what we can't do is we can't call good what God has called bad. We can't edit his word based on social or cultural pressure. We can't let culture tell us what to think about this. And we can't just follow our hearts into the correct 
perspective. We have to let God's word, God's intent with this gift guide us. So today I'm gonna do my very best to represent faithfully what I believe the full scope of scripture teaches about this subject. Also, you know, I'm a human being who makes mistakes. So you are free to disagree with me. Uh, I would just caution you to ask, if you disagree with me, to ask why, Um, why? Because if you just don't like the way some of this teaching makes you feel, is that a good reason to call it false? Just a thought. So here's some questions we need to consider about sex and sexuality. What is it for? What, how do we practice it? How do we celebrate this gift in a way that honors God and honors others? So let's go back to the beginning. If God created this as a gift for human beings, it's gotta be present in the beginning, right? God made Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve were equal representations of the image of God, right? They were both fully the image of God, but they were also very different. They looked different. When God created Eve, Adam looked at her and he saw someone who he could connect with, but who was different from him. And he said something along the lines of, finally, at last, someone like me, but different from me. And God made Adam and Eve in such a way that they complemented each other and they fit together in a very real sense. And the first mention of shame in scripture comes really early but it's the fact that there was no shame between Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve stood before each other without clothes on, no shame, right? That's the first mention of shame. The second mention of shame in scripture is that after Adam and Eve sin and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God told them not to eat from, and they take for themselves the power and authority to decide right from wrong, suddenly they're ashamed to be naked in front of each other. Why why is that the thing that, Scripture records that after they eat, now that they recognize that they're naked and they are ashamed. Why, why is that something that's pointed out? Because I think when they sin, something gets broken. Something's broken between God and humans and something's broken between humans, between each other. And their sexuality was part of that thing that was broken between them. And ever since then, we've been dealing with the brokenness and the destruction of sexuality in our world. Um, just take pornography, for example. We, we know this is a problem, and it's not just a problem for people out there. It's a problem for people in here. But I didn't realize how big of a problem it is for young people. Google Analytics, you can, you can find a lot of things about uh, what people are searching for online through Google Analytics, and Google Analytics reports that there is a 4,700, a 4,700% increase, 4,700% increase in searches for pornography when school is not in session. Is that terrifying? That's, That's a little disturbing to me, yeah. It's not just a problem for adults, both men and women, but it's a problem for young people as well. Sexuality in our culture is broken. The Pew Research Center did a study in 2019 on the landscape of marriage and cohabitation in the U.S. And their goal was to to look at real real people uh, who are choosing to get married and people who are choosing to not get married but to live together and to see what are the results of this. How is this working out? Uh, Because marriage is in decline, fewer people are getting married and cohabitation is on the rise. More people are choosing to live together uh, without getting married. And it's becoming more normal in some segments of society that, that people between the ages of 18 and 24 are more likely to have lived 
with someone, a, a romantic partner, than to have ever been married. Was this, is this a bad thing? Well, if it was a good thing, what should we see? We should see corresponding increases in happiness and relational satisfaction among people who are cohabitating versus getting married. But that is, in fact, not true. The surveys continually support the reality that people who are in a covenant marriage report higher levels of happiness and relational satisfaction than unmarried cohabitating people. So if, if it was a good thing, then we should be seeing those results, but that's not what we're seeing. So we have to ask these questions, like these things that our society is saying, this is a better way, this is more convenient, this is easier, marriage is a broken institution, but it's not leading to the results that people really want. So we need to decide what, what should our view of sex and sexuality be? What's the highest possible view of sex and sexuality? Well, it's gotta be God's view, right? Because if God created it and gave it as a gift, then we have to look at it from his perspective. If God is the one who designs it, he gets to be the one who defines it. Doesn't that make sense? So we're gonna look at a couple passages in scripture, one in 1 Corinthians chapter six and one in 1 Thessalonians chapter four and just kind of see the, the New Testament, Paul's perspective on what this looks like in his culture and his time and help us understand how do we adopt a godly perspective, the highest view of sex and sexuality for our culture and our time. Because if we're gonna be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to earth, remember the prayer, the Lord's prayer, like, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If we're gonna be a part of that, then what God wants to do, we have to understand what God wants to do is to redeem all the things that are broken in the world. And if sexuality is one of those aspects of humanity that's broken, God wants to redeem it and he wants to redeem it through the church. So we have to have the right perspective on this. So we're gonna start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And uh, just give you a little bit of a, of a preview on this. One of the issues in, in this Corinthian culture was uh, related to sexuality was re related to pagan worship. So they, there were a lot of these temples to, to Greek and Roman gods all over the Greek and Roman world. And part of being a good citizen of your community was to offer sacrifices in these temples. And, and that was kind of part of the economy of, of the culture. And so to participate in the economy, you... you you make sacrifices. But one of the things that was pretty common in these temple sacrifices was prostitution, temple prostitution. And this, this goes all the way back to even the time of Elijah and the false god Baal and Baal worship involved uh, temple prostitution. And so um, the people of God had, had seen this for, for hundreds, thousands of years. And so um, what Paul is doing in this conversation that we're about to read is he's helping them understand what their view, here's this cultural thing that's happening that temple prostitution is just a very common thing. And he's helping them develop a Christian, a godly, a Jesus-centered perspective on that. So let's pick up in verse 12. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything. And most of your text, this is gonna be in quotes. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Let's pause uh, right there. So uh, Paul brings in this argument about food. And here, here's what's going on there. There was also a discussion about what kind of food was okay to eat because most of the meat that was available in the markets was from animals that had been offered as sacrifices to false gods. 
And so there were a lot of Christians, especially the Jews, the Jewish Christians, who would say, we cannot touch that meat. It's, been, it's, it's unclean. It's been offered to a false god. And there were other people, that, a lot of the Gentiles, who grew up eating it, and they were like, well, I don't really see a problem. We don't believe in those gods anyway. We know they're not real, so why is it a big deal if someone else offered you know, that sacrifice? I didn't offer the sacrifice. You know, This is just what's available in the market. And so Paul kind of told them, his teaching on this was like, hey, you should follow your conscience. You should do what you think is right and just don't judge people who are gonna look at this differently. And so they kind of took that teaching about food and they're applying it to this concept of temple prostitution. They're going, well, Paul said that as long as we follow our conscience, we do what we think is right. We don't, we don't really judge people who are gonna eat you know, this meat or we're not eat the meat. Then we can do the same with sexuality. And so we can have the same view about you know, this temple prostitution thing that Paul teaches us to have about food. And Paul says, no, no, you can't. These are not the same thing. Uh, eating and sexuality is not the same. And so Paul is gonna go on and explain how these two things are very different and they need, we need to have a very different perspective on them. Let's pick up wherever we left off here, right there. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Uh, oh, good, that's good. Where does that come from? The two will become one flesh. Paul throws this out like it's a very common statement. You've probably heard this phrase. If you, there's a lot of marriage ceremonies where this phrase comes up. Where does it come from? Genesis chapter two, when Adam and Eve meet and they're connected and Adam says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, right? That goes all the way back to Adam. Jesus quotes this again in the Gospels. What is happening with the two becoming one flesh? Does that mean when a man and a woman come together that they go from being two separate bodies to one body and, and they're just, you know, they, they're sharing the same brain or heart, but they have, you know, two arms and, and one head and no, that's obviously not what it means. We know that that doesn't happen. So something else is going on. This two becoming one is something else happening. It's something that's beyond what's happening with our bodies. Something is happening with our hearts and our minds when two people engage in sexual activity. Something more than physical is happening. That's what Paul is trying to say. This is not just physical. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, the two will become one flesh. For whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. It's not just physical. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Paul is super clear here that we cannot separate what we do with our bodies from what we think about with our spirit. We can't separate those things. And so we have to understand that whatever freedom that we feel like we have in Christ to you know, decide whether we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, that's not a really a big thing for our culture, it does not apply when it comes to sexuality because God has created sex as a gift and he's, he's instructed us, Here, here's the way that this is gonna bring, bring peace and joy into your life. And when we go outside of those bounds, it actually creates destruction. So he tells them to flee sexual immorality. Well, how do we know what sexual immorality is? That feels like a really big subject, right? Well, uh, there, there's a lot of clarity here in the Bible about what 
constitutes sexual immorality. And you can find, especially in the New Testament, you can find lists and it'll say, here's all the things to not do. Don't, just don't, you know, don't with these things. So you can find lists. Those are easy to find. They're really clear. But I think the most compelling evidence for what sexual immorality is and how destructive it can be is actually in stories, the narratives that we see. So I just wanna point you to a few of these stories because I think they're really powerful. And I think it's really important that we go back. So I want you to jot down maybe these references and go back and look up these stories because they explain what sexual immorality is and how it's destructive. So the first one is in Genesis chapter 38. And it's where this, this man named Judah um, has uh, sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now he didn't know it was her at the time. He, she was disguised. I don't know. It was kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a weird story. You should read it. But this blew up their, this family. It caused a lot of pain and destruction. The next one is 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is David and Bathsheba. You've probably heard this, but this is a man who just sees a woman and he wants her, so he takes her because he has the authority and the power to do so. And it creates so much pain and destruction. And in fact, it leads to at least two deaths, probably more if you kind of play this out, but the death of Uriah and the death of the son that was born to David and Bathsheba. And then the next one is Absalom or Amnon and Tamar. So Amnon and Tamar are both children of David. So after David commits his sin with Bathsheba and then, then the prophet says, hey, this is, gonna, this is gonna have ripple effects in your family for a long time. Amnon, uh, his, Tamar is his half-sister and he rapes her. And uh, David doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't punish Amnon. So David's other son, Absalom says, somebody's gotta do something about this. And he takes action. And it ends up in a civil war between Absalom and David. And Absalom's trying to take the throne from his father. And it started because David didn't do anything to protect his daughter. And so all of these cases are really cases of, of men in power abusing their power in ways that created destruction and harm. And we, we've got to look at those examples and say, man, this, this is part of what God's talking about when he says, hey, th this is a gift, but you've got, to, you've got to leverage it in the correct way in the way that I designed it, or it's going to create destruction and death. So we can't separate what's going on in our bodies. Here, here's what's happening. There's so much happening um, with, with sexuality that goes beyond the physical. It's, it's mental and it's emotional, it's psychological, and it's important that we recognize all of that. And we need to trust God's definition. So why? Why would we trust God's design and definition and boundaries for sex and sexuality? Why would we trust God's way? Uh, the simple answer is our way is broken. <laughs> Every other way is broken. The, the worldly way of viewing this is broken and damaged and leads to so much pain and heartache. So there's a couple of different perspectives in the world around us, the, the culture, the, the, the non-Christian culture around us about sex and sexuality. One is, it's no big deal. It's, just, it's not that big a deal. It's just, it's just recreational. As long as it's consensual, it's really fun. Uh, so it, there was a, a children's program, the children's educational program, uh, where they were talking to children about this subject and they explained sex this way. It's something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. That's how they were teaching children about what this means. If that's all it is, then it's just, it's not that big a deal. It's just recreational. But if it's more than that, well, we can't just say it's, it's no big deal. In this arena, sociology is actually beginning to catch up with theology in some really interesting ways. There's a Washington Post article that came out about a month ago about how uh, consent has to be the lowest possible bar. And, and we, there has to be something beyond just consent to, to make this okay. 
And, and it was interesting, the author, who's not a Christian, was pointing to a lot of research and, and you know, built a really strong case and then kind of left it with a question like, well, we don't know what the boundaries should be, but we know that consent's not enough. And I'm going, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do know what the boundaries should be. It's been, it's been clarified for us. It's really clear. But that, you should look that up. The article is, is titled Rethinking Sex. It's, it's pretty interesting and helpful, especially coming from a, a secular perspective. So the other uh, idea is that, that sexuality is a huge deal. So either it's not a big deal or it's a huge deal and it actually defines everything about you and everything about your relationships. And it's, it's the overarching theme of your life is how you think about and engage in uh, sex and sexuality. Well, that's also uh, false and not, not the way of God. It's, it, it leads to the worship of sex and sexuality in a way that you see in television ads, right? And you don't even know what they're advertising. You just know that they're somehow they're using, you know, this sexuality to try to get you to buy a product. Usually it's perfume, which I don't, I don't get that. But I mean, that's kind of, you know, where it is. But you see it in TV shows and in movies. And it's, that's the worship of sex and sexuality and saying that how you view this and how you engage in this, it defines everything about you. Well, that's, that's not the way of, of God either. How did we get here? How did we get to this place where, where our culture has just a widely different view than what scripture offers? Well, one of, this, uh, one of the ways we get there is the, the removing, the removal of procreation as a part of the natural uh, result of uh, sexual activity. Uh, so what I'm talking about is birth control. When that came on the scene, people started to see things differently. I'm not, I'm not making a statement about whether birth control is good or bad. I'm just saying when it, when it came into being, things changed in our culture about how we see this. And so this kind of leads to one of the big questions of our current day. One of the headlines in the news today is, is Roe versus Wade and the abortion subject and pro-life or pro-choice. So I just want to take a little sideline moment um, to share what I, I think I want us to hear and, and understand about this conversation because we're in this weird place where we think Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned, but we're not entirely sure. And if it does, we're not sure what that's going to mean. Um, if it happens, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned by the Supreme Court, I believe we can anticipate some positive changes in Indiana law limiting elective abortions. I think this is a good thing uh, that we'll see fewer abortions. It's going to become a lot more difficult in most states for people to have abortions. You know, states are going to handle this all differently. However, limiting or criminalizing abortion does not solve the problems that lead most women to seek abortions. These are often financial, relational, physical, or family challenges or some combination. It's a very complex issue. So our job as Christians was never to put our hope in the laws of the land. We don't get to just say, hey, we did it. We overturned Roe v. Wade. Done, mission accomplished. Well, it's a good thing, but it's not the solution to the problem. The kingdom of God is about healing and wholeness. So whether abortion is illegal or legal or limited, the job of the Christian community remains the same. It's always been that we're here to love people who are dealing with complex and life-altering situations. We're here to help them find the best and most God-honoring path forward. I think we need to anticipate, if this gets overturned, we need to anticipate a rise in the need for crisis pregnancy services, and we need to respond accordingly. So we need to be asking questions like, how can we partner with those who help women through difficult and dangerous or unwanted pregnancies? How can we support the foster care and adoption systems that are gonna see more children and they're already stretched systems? How can we leverage our generosity to address an increase in child poverty? These are questions that we need to ask. Now, all of these are better than dealing with the problem of abortion. Abortion, we, we wanna limit that. We wanna see that go down. But 
it doesn't solve all of these other problems. So as a church family, what I hope I would see us do is begin to engage in resourcing crisis pregnancy centers, welcoming single mothers, and really trying to look at the root of some of these issues that lead women to consider abortion. So that just kind of a sideline. I'm gonna go back to what we were talking about before. Just thought it was important to say that. So back to this kind of the cultural views, either it's no big deal, sex and sexuality is no big deal, or it's something that we worship and it defines everything about us. So uh, why, how is this going? How, how is this leading to, what is this leading to in our, in our society? Um, Aaron Brockett, uh, who's a, a preacher over at uh, Trader's Point, and uh, he said, when you separate spirituality from sexuality, it always creates a wound. When we try to make something just physical, that's not really just physical, it always creates a wound. And what we're seeing in our society since the sexual revolution uh, of the 60s, what we're seeing is increase in anxiety and depression, fewer people experiencing happiness in their relationships, more brokenness around this subject, more shame around this subject, more damaged relationships around this subject, more loss of trust, more poisonous secrecy, more battles for power. So it's not really working out. And God wants to redeem this through the church. And we, we need to embrace this reality that it's not just physical. If it was, then I don't think we would be seeing all the, the negative ramifications that come from sexual abuse and harassment and those kind of things. The reason why these things are so harmful is because it's not just physical. And we need to embrace that reality. So how should we, how should we think about it? Like if it's a gift from God and God gets to define it, what are his definitions and how, how should we view that? So let me, let me ask this question. Are you, do you like fire? Do you like fire? So some of you are sort of pyromaniacs and your, your gut response is absolutely, I love it, love fire, fire's great. A more cautious person, the type of person that I would let babysit my children would say, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. What, what are we talking about? Are we talking about like a candle? Are we talking about like a nice fire pit in the backyard? Or are we talking about like a forest fire or a house fire? It kind of depends because fire can be good or it can be very destructive, right? It's also true about sexuality. It, it, can, be, it can be very good. It can be a gift from God that, that brings relational intimacy that reflects the covenant nature between God and human beings or it can be very destructive. And what makes it, Either, either what, what defines whether, it's, whether fire is good or destructive? It's, it's the boundaries that we create for it, right? You, you keep your fire in a fire pit, it's good. But if you don't have a fire pit, if you go out in the woods, anybody who's camped and know, you know the rules about how to deal with a campfire, because if you don't deal with it properly, it can lead to a forest fire, which is destructive and actually lead to death. Sexuality is the same way. We've got to think about this in a way that trusts God's definition to be the boundaries that set us up for success here. And God's boundaries are a covenant marriage. A covenant marriage, not just marriage. We need to understand marriage is not like the gold, you know, like the thing like, oh, if you're married, then there's no sexual immorality happening there. We need to understand even, even marriages can be broken, but what we're talking about is a covenant marriage. A covenant marriage where two people 
um, made a commitment, not just to each other, but to God. That's the difference between just marriage and a covenant marriage. A covenant marriage involves three people. Just, just marriage is two people saying yes to each other. And there are two human beings that are both broken and flawed and make mistakes and break their promises. And that's just who we are. But when we involve God, there's at least one person now in this covenant who's not gonna break his promise, who's not gonna fail, who's not gonna fall. And it's so crucial that we lead people into covenant marriage and that maybe your marriage needs to be renewed as a covenant between you and your spouse with God at the center because that's, that's, that's the way that God designed this to work because a covenant marriage reflects God's relationship with us where he makes a promise to us and he is faithful and he has called us to be faithful and we get to share intimacy with our heavenly father because of this covenant and we can trust him and that's, that's how God designed sex to be a gift for human beings is in the context of a covenant marriage. I, I wanna read one more passage of scripture and, and, and close us out here. Just, you, you're aware at this point that there's a whole lot on this subject that I'm not gonna get to today, right? Um, th there's, a, there's a whole lot to think about. There's a whole lot of questions. There's a whole lot of uh, different areas, uh, subject areas that, that we could talk about and we're not gonna get to them all today. What I'm hoping is to give us a foundation for understanding how God wants to redeem sexuality, the brokenness of it, through the church, and that's, that's us. So let me uh, read this one more passage from, from Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 3 to 8. Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That is a key line, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. In the, in the upside down kingdom of God, sex is never leveraged selfishly. And when only one person benefits, it's, it's wrong. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins we, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul says, guys, this, I didn't make this stuff up. The church is not making up rules about sex and sexuality. God created it, he gifted it to us, and he defines the best way for us to experience peace and joy from this. And so Paul says, like, we, we've, got to, we've got to move away from this. But I think what we need to acknowledge is that the way scripture defines sexual immorality makes pretty much all of us guilty. You think, well, I'm, I'm not, I've, I've never committed adultery, I, I'm not. I haven't been involved in sexual immorality. Pornography is sexual immorality. Uh, Jesus, if we go by Jesus's definition in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, anyone who looks at another person lustfully has committed adultery in their heart. I'm afraid that I am guilty of sexual immorality. And so what we have to do is acknowledge that we are tempted, very tempted to paint targets on certain types of sexual immorality and call those worse than the way I have committed sexual immorality. And we've set ourselves up as judges over what's acceptable sexual immorality and what's not. It's a little arrogant of us, right? God says, just run away from all of it. And when you find it in yourself, confess and repent and lean on God's grace and he forgives and when you find it in others, we respond with grace. The church should not be a place of shame. There's a difference between guilt and shame, right? Guilt can lead us to confession and repentance, and it's supposed to. 
Guilt is saying I did a bad thing. Shame is saying I'm a bad person. And the church should not be a place of shame because we believe that God loves all people, all sins can be forgiven, all brokenness can be healed and restored. So we have to be a place where, where we teach what's God's boundary for sexual immorality, uh, for, for, for when it's good and, and when it's not, and that we never let it be leveraged. We never let anyone leverage authority or power over another person uh, for the pursuit of pleasure. And that we recognize that we are all in need of God's grace and forgiveness on this subject. We wanna view this as a gift and trust God's definition. So we've got a personal responsibility to root it out in our own lives. We have a responsibility to the people around us to demonstrate grace and truth. And when we do that, Here's the beauty of this. When we do that, when we, when we view sexuality the way God has instructed us and gifted us and designed it for us, we get to be a part of God redeeming the brokenness of sexuality that we find in the world. And there's so much peace on the other side of that. It's being salt and light. That's what we're called to so I invite you, if, if this raises questions or, or, or conflict in you or tension or to wrestle with this, wrestle with scripture, again, you're, you're welcome to disagree with me. Uh, don't advise uh, disagreeing with God. You're welcome to disagree with God, but you, you know, you're gonna work out, out with him. Um, but what God has invited us to do is be a part of restoring this, this element of brokenness in our world. And I think we as a church should be a part of that. I wanna invite you to, to pray. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray and then a couple things before we leave. God, we thank you so much for uh, making it clear to us how you have designed sex and sexuality to be a gift for humans and that it also can be very destructive. And I pray that you would lead us into um, embracing your view of it, um, showing a lot of grace uh, to ourselves and to the people around us who have failed in this area and really seeking for restoration for the world um, in this area. And I pray that you would do that as we trust your word and trust your Holy Spirit and just submit to you. Use us, Father, to be salt and light uh, in this area. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A couple things before you take off. Um, my sabbatical, hopefully uh, you're all aware uh, that I will be taking a sabbatical and it starts on May the 23rd. So it's about eight days from now. And I'm really excited to, to dive into this time. I'm really gonna be... Um, uh, studying and, and resting in my identity in Christ. And so this is a, a, something that we're gonna actually do together as a church family is study identity in Christ together. There'll be a sermon series starting on uh, June the 12th that will walk us through four weeks of that. Um, and there is a book that will go along with that series. Uh, it's a daily devotional that actually will start earlier um, than bef before the, the series. And those books are available today. We want everyone to have a book. So uh, there's, there's some in this, this lobby, there's some uh, in this lobby. Please grab one of those Identity in Christ devotional books before you leave today. There's an option in there. If you wanna give $10 to, to cover the cost, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to do that. We want everyone to have a book. So grab one of those books before you leave. And there's some invitation cards uh, by the black boxes and all the doors. Uh, we want to be people who are inviting others to life with Jesus. And so take one of those cards, invite someone to a connection event, to your, to your microchurch, your Bible study, or to come and worship with us. Grab a couple of those cards that have that information on there as you leave. Love you all. Go and be salt and light in a world that des desperately needs the love of Christ. God bless you.